The sermon text for today is again Genesis 2, 4 through 17. We're going to look at it from yet another perspective uh, this morning, and the New Testament reading will be Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Let's give ourselves now to the reading of God's most holy word. Genesis 2, beginning in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where the gold is good, and the gold of that land is good. Where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. Uh, Christ is the focus here. And here Christ is referred to as our great high priest. Since then, the writer to the Hebrews says, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So far the reading of God's holy word. May the Lord help us to hear it and to apply it to our lives. Brothers and sisters, I hope and pray that you're not growing tired of the rather tedious journey that we are taking through the first few chapters of Genesis. All of Scripture is important, you know that, but there are some passages that are more foundational than others. And Genesis chapters 1 through 3 are foundational. They communicate truths that are basic and seminal. These chapters lay down foundations that are necessary for a worldview that is biblical and true, and so it is good that we take our time here in these chapters. It's so very important for us to have a worldview that is biblical and true. A proper biblical and true worldview is what helps us to live well uh, in this life. It is what helps us to endure hardship, in fact. I find that those who do not have a fully formed biblical and true worldview often struggle to live well in the Christian life, particularly when hardship uh, strikes. And so we must, we must have a fully formed worldview, one that is biblical and true. And by worldview, I mean the way in which we view the world. 
It, worldview is a philosophy of life. A, a person's worldview is a sum total of what he or she thinks about life's biggest questions. Where did we come from? Uh, what and who are we? What is our purpose? What is our destiny? It's important to have our worldview biblical and true, um, for it will undoubtedly shape the way that we live our lives. By true, I mean that we must have a worldview that corresponds to the reality of things, you see. Uh, there is truth and there is falsehood. Uh, things really happened in a certain way in the past. Things really are a certain way. And how important it is for us to have a, a worldview that corresponds to that so that we're not living in some, some made-up world, thinking of the world in a, a made-up sort of way, but rather we have a, a worldview that is true. It actually corresponds to the reality of things. And by biblical, I mean that our worldview must come ultimately from God's Word. I hope that you would agree with me that God is the only one capable of communicating to us a view of the world that is thoroughly true. I hope you would agree with that. God is the only one capable of communicating to us a view of the world that is thoroughly true. Uh, yes, unbelieving scientists, philosophers, and theologians, there are in fact unbelieving theologians out there, brothers and sisters, uh, they may seek to establish their own worldview independent from God, through their observation of the natural world and by use of human reason. Many do that. Uh, everyone has a worldview and most have formed it for themselves. They have crafted their view of the world on their own, independent of God, not giving consideration to what He has said. You see, uh, scientists, philosophers, even theologians do this. They, they, they observe the natural world. They use their human reason to the best of their ability. Uh, but what they do not realize is that they are terribly limited by their own smallness, by their creaturely limitations, and especially by their sin. Uh, do the unbelieving scientists, philosophers, and theologians come to some true conclusions as they attempt to craft for themselves a view of the world? I'm sure that they do. For God does reveal Himself to some degree through the world that He has made, but there are so many things that lie beyond our ability to comprehend apart from God's Word. This is due to our creatureliness, not to mention our sin, which blinds our eyes and clouds our judgment. The true child of God happily acknowledges that we are dependent upon God for truth. He alone is qualified to communicate it. He has graciously revealed His truth to us, and we are to receive it happily and humbly. Prideful man will not do this, though. Prideful, prideful man will say, I will decide for myself what is true. In fact, when we come to the narrative of the fall in Genesis chapter 3, we will find that that was at the heart of Adam's sin and Eve's sin. They essentially lifted their fist up to God and said, I will decide for myself what is true. I will de decide for myself what is good. And what is evil? I will not submit to you. But the true child of God happily acknowledges that we are dependent upon God uh, for truth. The, the same questions that God put to Job, I think, are very appropriate for us to consider here. You remember the story of Job, don't you? All of his suffering, all of his struggles. He did quite well in the midst of it, but he struggled, as probably would we. But at the end of the book, near to the end of it, in Job 38, 4-7, God actually begins to put Job to the, to, to, the, to the test, and He begins to question him. And here is what God says to Job. He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Right? Job, uh, here you are struggling with life's biggest questions. 
Where were you, though, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars, the angels, sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Uh, God's questioning of Job goes on and on in that passage. And we do not need to read it all to understand the point. Where were you when God laid the foundations of the earth is the question that was being pressed to Job, and it's the question that's being pressed to you and me. What, what, what can we say to that? What must our reply be? Lord, I did not even exist. I wasn't there to witness it. No one was except the angels in heaven, right? Evidently. I wasn't there. Who is qualified then to reveal foundational truths to us? Can any man do it on his own? Can any man simply reason his way to the answers to life's biggest questions? The Christian is content to say, no, we cannot. Uh, Not infallibly so. But God can reveal truth to us infallibly. Why? Because He was there in the beginning. And more than that, He Himself is the source of all things. Uh, And so just as we are dependent upon God for life and breath, so too we are dependent upon Him for truth. If we are to know the truth, ultimate truth, then God must reveal it to us. Uh, Thanks be to God that He has revealed it to us. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke. What an incredible thing. Spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. God has revealed truth to us. He has revealed Himself to us supremely through the eternal Son of God become flesh. And so what a treasure the Word of God is, brothers and sisters. What a treasure uh, this book is. Uh, May it be to us more desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. That is what Psalm 19.10 says. May, May it be to us more desired than gold. Is it that way to you, brothers and sisters? Do you treasure God's Word? Uh, Do you desire it more than the sweetest things that this life has to offer? Uh, Do you come to it with reverence and awe when you open the pages of Holy Scripture yourself or when you hear Holy Scripture read and and explained? Uh, Do you sit on the edge of your seats, Uh, not because the one explaining it is particularly skillful in explaining it, but because it is the Word of God. What an incredible thing. Brothers and sisters, here we are creatures. More than that, we are fallen creatures. And we would be utterly lost and and helpless in this world. We would be left to wander around in the dark, not knowing what truth is, were it not for the fact that God has spoken. He determined to reveal Himself. He determined to reveal truth to us so that we might have light to live by in this dark, fallen, corrupt, and twisted world. I actually sympathize with those in our culture. It's very popular in our culture for, those, for, for people to say, we cannot know truth. What is truth? Can we really know it? Is there any one truth that stands apart from the rest? I can sympathize with those who reason that way because if you do not, first of all, say, I believe that there is a God and I believe that this God has spoken clearly and infallibly to us, then... I would agree, you're left to basically stumble around in the darkness, you know. You have this man's opinion and that person's opinion and they've arrived at it by their observation of the natural world and their use of reason and they're contradictory. It's hopeless, really. But God has spoken. He has given us His Word. And so let us put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted Word which is able to save our souls, James 1. 21.
what are the foundational truths that have been established for us so far in our study of Genesis 1 and 2? Among other things, we have learned that God is the creator and we are his creatures. I cannot think of a more basic truth than this. And yet so many live as if it were not so. Many live as if they were God and God was theirs to create. No, instead, God is God and we are his creatures. This truth has been established for us in the opening pages of Holy Scripture. We have been made by him and in his image. As image bearers of God, we were created to commune with God. We were created to imitate him in his kingship. Man, as he came from the hand of God, was to exercise dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Genesis 1.26 The man and the woman together were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. What does this have to do with you and me? It has everything to do with you and me, for it reveals something of the purpose for which God created man. This is very practical, is what I am saying. No one ever says this to me, but sometimes I feel as if people think, give us something practical, Pastor. You know, here I am struggling in my marriage. Here I am struggling to raise my children. Here I am struggling in my work. Here I am struggling with sin. Give me something practical. And I agree, practical things are very important. I, I, I need to give them to you. Application needs to be made and suggested. Don't get me wrong. I agree with all of that. But this is immensely practical to look at the opening pages of Holy Scripture and to see this is how God made us. This is the purpose for which He created me. We have to take these truths, these big worldview, foundational truths, and we have to digest them and break them down and begin to live by them in our lives on a day-to-day basis. In Genesis 2, we learned that God entered into a covenant with the man. It was a covenant of obedience or works. Evidently, the man and woman were placed under a time of testing. Two trees were set before them, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were created with a free will, God created man with that natural liberty and power of acting upon choice, our confession says. They were neither forced nor by any necessity of nature determined to do good or evil. They were free creatures there in the garden. Two trees set beside them, had the liberty and power of acting upon choice. The man and the woman, they were put to the test. The reward for obedience was life, that is a higher order of life than they had experienced in the garden so far. Eternal life, a glorified life. Uh, The stated consequence for disobedience was death, that is, spiritual death as well as physical death. God created man upright and perfect and gave him a righteous law which had been unto unto life had he kept it and threatened death upon the breach thereof. And so the two trees functioned as sacraments in that garden place. They symbolized obedience and life on the one hand, the tree of life, and rebellion and death. On the other, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What does this have to do with you and me? And I say again, it has everything to do with you and me. For it shows what it means to be born into this world fallen and in sin. Though we had not yet come to this part of the story, Genesis 3, you know it well enough. You know what happens. Adam did not keep the covenant, but he broke it. And we are born in Adam. Therefore, we are born under the covenant of works, which is a broken covenant. It cannot give life. That is how we enter into this world. It only brings death. What does this have to do with you and me? It has everything to do with you and me, for it also shows what Christ has accomplished. I want you to hear me. You cannot understand Jesus Christ if you do not understand Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. 
You can't get the Christian faith at all. You can't get why it is that we are justified freely through faith in Christ if you do not understand what happened there in that garden. How God made the man and the woman, where He placed them, the covenant He entered into, and their breaking of it. It's only after having that as a foundational truth that you can understand what Jesus Christ actually came to accomplish as our Savior, as the second Adam. He, being the second Adam, has kept the covenant of works. He paid the penalty for sin, which is death. And this He has done for all of God's elect, for all who have and do and will believe upon His name. This is the clear teaching of the Scriptures. God planted a garden in a place called Eden, and there He placed the man and woman whom He had formed. The garden was the place where this covenant was made. I emphasize the word place because I think places, uh, a place, it's a very significant thing that runs throughout the pages of Holy Scripture. In fact, did not Christ say in His earthly ministry, I go and I prepare a place for you? You Notice the theme, this, this garden paradise. It was a place where man was to enjoy communion with God. It was a temple or a sanctuary where man was to enjoy communion with God. God was present with man in that place. It was in the garden that man was to fulfill his purpose as he lived in perpetual obedience to God who made him. It was in the garden that Adam was to keep the covenant. Adam and Eve were to worship and serve God there in that place. They were to reproduce and teach their children and their children's children to worship and serve God there in that place. They were to fill the earth with the image of God by bearing children and by working to expand the garden of God. The garden of God was only a small place, wasn't it? It was planted in a place called Eden and it occupied only a small place in that land called Eden. And indeed, the man and the woman were to fill the earth and subdue it. They were to push out the boundaries of this garden. They were to bring the unorganized parts of earth, the so-called chaotic parts of earth, into order so that the whole of earth would be a temple sanctuary where God would enjoy communion with man and man with God. This is the scene that we see at the very end of the book of Revelation because this is what Christ has accomplished and earned. What does this have to do with you and me? And I say again, it has everything to do with you and me, for it shows God's original purpose for humanity. It also makes it possible for us to understand what Christ has earned. Not only has He earned the salvation of individuals, but also the new heavens and earth in which righteousness dwells. The first Adam was to accomplish this. He was to fill the earth with righteousness until heaven and earth became one, but he failed. Thanks be to God, the second Adam, who is Christ our Lord, has succeeded through his obedient life and his sacrificial death. He, by virtue of his life, death, burial, and resurrection, has been appointed the heir of all things, Hebrews 1-2. He is the one who has earned for us the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells, 2 Peter 3-13. And this is the new heavens and new earth that we eagerly await. So understanding Adam's original place in the garden shows what has been restored to us if we are in Christ Jesus. Understanding Adam's original place in the garden shows to us what has been restored if we are in Christ Jesus. If we are in Christ Jesus, being united to Him by faith, then the image of God has been renewed in us. If we are in Christ, we are again called sons of God as Adam was. We again stand before Him aright, our enmity with God 
having been wiped away by the blood of the Lamb. And so too our purpose has been renewed. We who are in Christ Jesus have this task. We're to work towards the expansion of the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth. Uh, This was Adam's original task, wasn't it? And it is ours also if we are in Christ Jesus, who is the second Adam. The difference, of course, is that we must work towards the expansion of the kingdom of God in a world that is fallen. Whereas Adam was originally working in paradise, wasn't he? Adam was placed in that garden. There was no evil or sin or suffering there. Uh, He was to expand that garden, or he was to expand the kingdom of God, if you will. Uh, But we must do this same work But in a fallen world, we expand the kingdom of God by pushing back the gates of hell now. And we are to work towards the expansion of the kingdom of God, not by pushing out the borders of the garden sanctuary of God and through reproduction as Adam was, but through the proclamation of the gospel, which is the good news that God has provided a Savior for sinners, Christ Jesus our Lord. And so our work looks different, doesn't it, than it would have looked for Adam in that garden paradise. But our task is not altogether different from Adam's original one. That is what I am saying to you. Something has been restored to us. The purpose that Adam had, Adam, fill the earth with the, the, the glory of God, fill the earth with the kingdom of God, fill the earth with the garden of God, so that the whole thing is filled with righteousness. That, that same sort of task is ours now, though it looks vastly different because of sin. That same task is ours. We are to make disciples of all nations, aren't we? And this we are faithfully to do until the Lord returns and makes all things new. He was to work towards the expansion of God's kingdom, and so are we. All of this matters greatly, friends. When we handle the first few chapters of Genesis, we are handling things that are absolutely essential to a right understanding of our faith, and I hope that you would agree with this. The The foundational truth that I wish to emphasize today as we begin now to hone in upon it is a very simple one. It is that Adam was not a farmer, as many suppose, but he was a priest in the garden temple of God. Uh, Put a little bit differently, Adam's work was not only to dig irrigation canals and to plant and cultivate trees. I think this was a part of his work too, by the way. Uh, The river that flowed from Eden, dividing into four, I think corresponding to the four corners of the earth, uh, I think it suggests that Adam's job was to, to take Uh, the provision that God had made, and he was to expand that garden. I think he was, in a sense, a farmer. That was a part of his work. I am not denying that. But he was more than that. He was also to function as a priest. He was to work and keep the garden temple of God. His task was to drive away any intruder who would seek to undermine the proper worship of God in that place. This is an important thing to recognize as we eventually transition into Genesis chapter 3 and we see an intruder come. There he slithers into the garden. He brings a word of temptation. He comes, notice, first of all, to the woman. Where is Adam? He is a negligent priest. He is being negligent in his priesthood. Adam was to draw near to God also. He was to live holy before him. He was to promote the worship of God. He was to keep the garden, driving away anyone who would attempt to defile sanctity. He was to do the work of a priest. And how do we know that Adam was a priest? How do we know that Adam was a priest in the garden? Uh, By the way, remember that he was also a prophet and king. He was a prophet in that he was to proclaim God's word to Eve and to his descendants. Um, He was to say to them, 
Thus saith the Lord, as it were. He was to do the work of a prophet. And he was a king in that he was to exercise dominion in imitation of his maker with Eve as his helper by his side. And I think that Adam was a prophet and king is, is very obvious, but, but how do we know that Adam was a priest? And I have four answers to that question and then suggestions for application. One, we know that Adam was a priest by paying careful attention to the narrative of Genesis chapters 2 and 3. And notice where Adam was placed after being created by God. He was placed within the garden, which, as it was established in the previous sermon, was not just a garden, but it was a temple or sanctuary of God. Uh, This is where priests do their work, isn't it, in temples? And here Adam was created. He was created outside of the garden, but then he was set down within it. So we see it's suggested at already that he was to do the work of a priest. Notice also Adam's proximity to God. Adam stood in the presence of God. Genesis 3 makes it clear that God's presence was there in Eden. And Adam stood in the presence of God. God walked in the garden amongst the man and the woman. He, his presence was in that place, suggesting that Adam was a priest. Priests stand in the presence of God. Lastly, notice Adam's work. God commanded him specifically to work and keep the garden. God commanded Adam specifically to work and keep the garden. And that language is very significant. Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. That was his task after being set down in that garden temple. And this is precisely the work that the priests under the Old Covenant were to accomplish. This is what I want you to recognize. Adam was to work and keep the garden, and the priests who ministered under the Old Covenant and under the Old and Mosaic Covenant were to do the same thing in the tabernacle and later the temple of Israel. In in Numbers 18, the work of priests, the priests of Israel, is described. And notice uh, the the, the similarity in, in, in terminology between Genesis 2.15 and Numbers 18. They were uh, to work and keep the tabernacle and later the temple. Numbers 18 says, So the Lord said to Aaron, You and your sons and your father's house with you shall bear iniquity connected with the sanctuary. And you and your sons with you shall bear iniquity connected with your priesthood. Here, uh, the, the, the priests of Israel are being established and and instructed. And with you bring your brothers also, the tribe of Levi. So these are the Aaronic priests, the the Levites, uh, the tribe of your father, that you may join you and minister to you while you and your sons with you are before the tent of the testimony. They shall keep, do you hear it? They shall keep shamar in the Hebrew. It's the same word used in Genesis 2. They shall keep guard over you and over the whole tent. What was the job of the priests then, the Levites? It's to to guard, to keep uh, the the tent and and tabernacle, to keep it pure. But but they shall not come near to the vessels of the sanctuary or go to the altar lest they die and you also die. Only uh, the descendants of Aaron, uh, those who were uh, of Aaron were to do this. They shall join you and keep, Shemar again, same as in Genesis 2, guard over the tent of meeting for all the service. Here we have the word abodah, Uh, This is the noun form of the verb, which is to work in Genesis chapter 2. So we have these these terms appearing again. Uh, The the priests in Israel were to work and to keep uh, the tabernacle and later the temple, just as Adam was to work and keep the garden. 
they were set apart for the service or the work of the tent. And no outsider shall come near you, and you shall keep, again, guard over the sanctuary and over the altar, that there may never again be wrath on the people of Israel. And behold, I have taken your brothers, the Levites, from among the people of Israel. They are a gift to you, given to the Lord, to do the service or work. Um, Same word as in Genesis 2, only the noun form of the verb, of the tent of meeting. And you and your sons with you shall guard or keep your priesthood for all that concerns the altar and that is within the veil. And you shall serve or work. I give your priesthood as a gift, and any outsider who comes near shall be put to death. And so if we pay careful attention not only to Genesis 2, but also to what is said later on in the Pentateuch and the rest of Holy Scriptures, we see that that Adam, he he was a priest in that garden of God. He he had the same task that the the, the priests of Aaron and and the Levites were were to take up um, when God established His temple in the midst of Israel. The priests of Israel were to work and keep the tabernacle and later the temple, just as Adam was to work and keep the garden. The terminology, I think, is very significant. It's very deliberate. Uh, Why is this terminology used here? Why do they mirror one another? To show that the garden was a temple and Adam was a priest. The temple of Israel was a microcosm of creation and of Eden. This was established in the previous sermon. And the priests of Israel were a reflection of Adam and his original priestly function. Adam was to work in the garden to the glory of God laboring towards its universal expansion, and he was to keep or guard the garden from all intruders, preserving its sanctity. He was not just a farmer, friends, but he was a priest. He had a job to do. That was to protect this sanctuary, to preserve its sanctity. And in fact, this is the thing that he failed to do when it came time for temptation, uh, when it came to the fall. How do we know that Adam was a priest? First, by paying careful attention to the narrative of Genesis chapters 2 and 3. Secondly, by observing the development of the theme of priesthood in the history of redemption. Have you ever noticed this? That this theme of priesthood runs throughout the pages of Holy Scripture. I am saying now that Adam was a priest. In fact, uh, my proposal is, and I am not alone in this proposal at all, Uh, The original design for humanity, listen carefully, was that all would function as priests before God. What was God's original design for humanity? That all would function as priests before God. Adam had a particular role to play, being a federal head and representative of all humanity. But all were created to do what? To dwell in the presence of God, to worship God, to promote His worship amongst others, to guard the sanctity of the Garden of Eden. That was God's original design for humanity. Adam and all of his descendants were to minister in the presence of the Lord. They were to live holy before Him. They were to promote His worship while they preserved the sanctity of and extended the bounds of His holy tabernacle. But notice that after the fall, God, by His mercy and grace, still appointed priests. What an incredible thing this is. Think of it for a moment. The wages of sin is death, we know. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. What did man deserve? Only death. And if life was allowed to go on and death was delayed, did man deserve to approach God anymore now that he has fallen? We, we would say not at all. Man had no right at all to enter into the presence of the Lord. Man had no right at all to, to come before Him, to worship Him. All of that had been lost at the, at the time of the fall. But God, by His mercy, still provided a way for man to communion with God. That's why we see that there are still temples in the Old Testament. Right? And that the church itself is the temple of the Holy Spirit. What does that communicate? A way to God is still available to you. And this is only by the mercy and grace of God. Similarly, we see that 
there's priests. There's priests all over the Old Testament and even in the New. The theme of priesthood runs throughout. What is communicated here? A way of access is still available to fallen human beings. What an incredible thing. I'm thinking of Melchizedek and Aaron after him, the Levites, as well as others. The meaning of this is that God is merciful and gracious. A way to come before him is still available to us. Of course, after the fall, we can only come by way of a substitutionary sacrifice. Sacrifices have to be offered up to God. Blood sacrifices, prior to the coming of Christ, that blood, um, that, that blood pointed forward to the ultimate sacrifice that would be made. And of course, Christ, who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, uh, shed his own blood, offering up his blood to atone for the sins of all of his elect, that we might come through him. He is our good and faithful high priest. Uh, the fact that priests remained in the world from Adam to Christ communicated that a way to communion with God was still open. But notice this, Aaron and the Levites. Aaron and the Levites. They are the ones you usually think of when you think of priests, I hope. Some of you with a Roman Catholic background might actually think of Roman Catholic priests, uh, first of all, and I think that is a shame. There's no reason at all for there to be priests of that sort under the New Covenant, no biblical warrant whatsoever. Uh, But think of Aaron and the Levites. I think most of them, uh, most folks, when they think of priests, biblical priests, will think of Aaron and the Levites, the priests who ministered under the Old Covenant under Moses in Israel's tabernacle and temple. They were not the first priests, though. Have you ever thought of that? They were not the first They're the best-known priests. Their work is most clearly described for us in the pages of Holy Scripture. But they were not the first. They were not the last either. Adam was a priest, as I am saying, and all others are an echo of him. Adam's children knew to make sacrifices to God. Have you ever thought of that before? Cain did so badly. Abel got it right. But where did they learn to bring sacrifices to the Lord? This is priestly work. You, You recognize that, right? It's priests who offer up sacrifices to the Lord. And and here, Adam's children are doing it. Uh, Where did they learn to do this? The text doesn't explicitly say, but Adam must have taught them. Making sacrifices to God is priestly work. Abel functioned as a kind of priest then, as he offered up sacrifices to God as an act of worship before him. This he probably learned from Adam, his priestly father. And then we have that mysterious figure, Melchizedek. He lived long before Moses, Aaron, and Levi, and yet he was a priest of the Lord Most High and the King of Salem. The the book of Hebrews makes it clear that Christ, when he came, was a priest in the line of Melchizedek and not Aaron as the priests of the Old Covenant were. Aaron and the Levites were not the first priests, nor were they last. Christ himself is the high priest, and we are priests also in him, as we shall see. And so these priests all pointed forward to the coming of Christ, who would be our great high priest. Uh, To solidify the connection between the priests who minister after the fall and Adam as a priest, simply consider the imagery of the tabernacle of Israel and the priests who ministered there. The high priest of Israel was to enter the most holy place once per year, wasn't he? He represented the people as he entered the most holy place into the presence of God through the shedding of blood. So picture it now. I know you have never seen the tabernacle. Maybe you've seen diagrams of it before, pictures of it. But picture it, the high priest. Do you see how the the priesthood, by the way, went from being intended for all humanity in Adam uh, to being constrained very narrowly to just a few and and even just to one in Israel, the high priest. There he walks uh, through the holy place. He's already passed through the outer court with the the, the big uh, 
lavers filled with water which represent the seas of, of the world. He's walking through the world into the presence of God. There he comes and he, there's the lampstand which symbolizes the tree of life. He's approaching the presence of God. He comes up to this huge veil. Behind the veil is the Holy of Holies. What is there? The Ark of the Covenant is there, but the presence of God is in that place. It is the throne of God, is it not? Heaven is the, his throne and the earth is footstool. And so there, the presence of God is behind that place. But what does he see when he looks up upon that, that, that veil that separates the holy place from the most holy place. But uh, on that veil, embroidered uh, cherubim, symbolizing the ones that were set to guard the entrance to Eden after man's fall into sin. And as he goes into the most holy place, he looks, and there is the Ark of the Covenant. But what are on either sides of the Ark of the Covenant? Cherubim, like the ones set to guard the entrance to the Garden of Eden after man fell into sin. But here, one man has been appointed to enter in as a representative for the nation, and there he brings atonement for the people. There he intercedes on behalf of the people and prays for the people. There he, there he is in the presence of God, in that place, representing the people of Israel, God's chosen people. What is being communicated by all of this? It is that a way to access God is, is still available through the shedding of blood. It is still there, right? It is still there. Um, it, it, the imagery of, of Eden it's all over Israel's tabernacle and later temple. Uh, the, the priest uh, is, a, is an echo of, of Adam. Uh, here he represents others um, coming before God into his presence. Uh, but now a sacrifice had to be made, which prefigured Christ. But the way to the throne of God was still open, thanks be to God. Not only did the old covenant priests of Israel point forward to Christ, they were also an echo of Adam. That is what I am saying. Thirdly, we know that Adam was a priest by comparing Adam, who was a type, with Christ, our great high priest, who is the antitype. Thirdly, we know that Adam was a priest by comparing Adam, who was a type, with Christ, our great high priest, who is the antitype. Paul says directly in Romans 5.14 that Adam was a type of the one who is to come. Romans 5.14. Adam was a type of the one who was to come, a reference to Jesus the Christ. And so you have a type, and then you have an antitype, something that corresponds to it. What is a type? A type is a picture or model or foreshadow of something that is yet to come. The Old Testament scriptures are filled with types that pointed forward to the coming of the Savior who would then be the antitype or the thing which corresponds to the earlier types. Uh, C.J. Williams has some very wonderful things to say concerning typology. He says in his book, The Shadow of Christ in the Book of Job, that the person and work of Jesus Christ was imprinted on the history that led to his incarnation through people and events that were invested with prophetic meaning by God, offering glimpses of the coming Savior and reassuring God's people of the promise of His coming. It's a wonderful way to explain what a type is. He is saying that, that Christ was prefigured in, in, in events and people. Uh, in other, another way to say this is that God communicated to His old covenant people that Christ would come not only by speaking words through the prophets, but also through types and shadows. That is, historical people and events which said something, if you will, about the coming Christ, but not through words. Uh, the historical person named Adam was a type of Christ, Paul says. Uh, that means that certain things about Adam 
communicated things that would be true concerning the Christ once he arrived. Adam was human. The Christ would also be human. Adam was a son of God. Christ would be the son of God. Adam was born under the covenant of works. The Christ would be born under the covenant of works. And here is the point that Paul makes most firmly in Romans. Adam was a head or representative of others, and Christ would be a head or representative for others. Through Adam's headship, death came to all whom he represented, and through Christ's headship, life would come to all he represented. So you see how Adam was a type, a foreshadow, a picture of the Christ who would later come. The Christ is the antitype, the thing that corresponds to it. And at first, I get it, it seems almost inappropriate to compare Adam with Christ. Did that thought occur to you? Doesn't it almost seem inappropriate to compare Adam with Christ? Because when we think of Adam, we think of that guy who ruined it all, who who, who plunged us into sin and misery. And when we think of Christ, we think of our great Savior, the one who has rescued us. Why would we dare compare the two? Well, of course, in some respects, they couldn't be more different. But in some respects, they're very much similar, especially when it pertains to this issue of federal headship or representation. Adam was a representative for all humanity. Christ is a representative for all who are in Him, namely the elect of God from every age. Here is the point. If Christ is said in the New Testament to be our great high priest, then wouldn't that mean that Adam was also a priest? This is something that they share in common. The difference between the two is that the one was faithful in his priesthood, whereas the other was found to be unfaithful. But this is why there is only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He's the only mediator between God and men because where the first Adam failed as an unfaithful priest, uh, the second Adam, Christ Jesus our Lord, has succeeded. He is the one who, is, who has succeeded in bringing us to God. Uh, he is the only mediator between God and men. Lastly and very briefly, we know that Adam was a priest by considering that in Christ we have been renewed to function as priests before our God. Lastly, we know that Adam was a priest by considering that in Christ we have been renewed to function as priests before our God. The work of Christ is a work of renewal, brothers and sisters. Christ restores in us what was lost or marred at the fall. Adam was created a son of God. We in our fallenness are by nature children of wrath children of the devil, Ephesians 2.3, John 8.44. But in Christ we are restored, adopted as children of God by the Spirit by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Do you see that the work of Christ is a work of renewal? Created sons of God, children of the devil and children of wrath because of our fall into sin, but restored in Christ Jesus, adopted as His children by the Spirit. It's by Him that we say, Abba, Father. Adam was made in the image of God, but we in our fallenness find that the image is greatly marred and distorted. But in Christ, the image of God is renewed in us, you see. In Christ, the image of God is renewed in us. Listen to Colossians 3.9. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self, the old fallen sinful self, with its practices, and have put on the new self, the one that has been or is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. The work of Christ is a work of renewal. Uh, What was lost 
at the fall is, is being renewed to us. We're being renewed uh, in uh, the image of God. We're being renewed as sons of God. And likewise, Adam was created to live as a priest before God. This was God's design for all mankind. In our fallenness, we do not live as faithful priests, do we? But in Christ, our priesthood is restored. I want you to listen to the way that Peter speaks to the Christian. He says, as you come to him, as you come to Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. I I hope that you're able to hear the temple language that is being used here, right? You, again, are are the temple of God. You are the place where where God uh, dwells. But there is more to what Peter says. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. You are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That is 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5. What a, what a beautiful thing this is. I hope that you were able to hear it. If you are in Christ, if you are approaching God through faith in Him, then you are God's temple and you are a priest. You are a priest before God. What was lost with Adam has been restored in Christ Jesus. God's original design for humanity is that all would function as priests, that they would draw near to Him, live in His presence, holy before Him, promote His worship and the worship of others, work towards the expansion of His temple. That was God's design for humanity. That is how He created Adam. It was lost at the fall. Instead, we serve as priests for others, for ourselves and for false gods in our fallenness. But it has been restored in Christ Jesus, each one now being priests before God if they are in Christ Jesus. Those in Christ, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2, 4-5. Now a few words of application before we close. Brothers and sisters, do you recognize God's original design for humanity, that it was that all would function as priests before God? I want you to see this, to recognize it, to believe it. And I wonder if having recognized that, if you can now consider how far we have fallen, how far we have fallen, how many from amongst the children of men are interested in coming before God to worship and serve Him faithfully according to His revealed will? How many from amongst the children of men are interested in doing this, are interested in doing the work of a true priest? How many are interested in living holy before Him and to promote His worship amongst others? The the answer is that none are interested, none at all unless God intervenes. This is the state we are in, in our fallenness. Instead, uh, what are we interested in doing? In our natural and fallen state, we happily serve as false priests to false gods. We serve ourselves, we worship the things of this world, and we encourage others to do likewise. And so I want you to recognize how distorted we are in our sin, how bent out of shape we are in our sin. But do you see that God is merciful? He has provided a Savior, Christ Jesus our Lord, He is our faithful high priest. He he served God faithfully in all of his life. He was obedient to do the work that God had given him to do. And in the end, he offered a sacrifice up, didn't he? But he didn't offer a sacrifice up external to himself. He offered himself up for our sins. And I must ask this question, are you trusting in him? Do you have faith in him? Are you following him? 
Have you abandoned all hope in self and said, I, I will look to Christ and to Christ alone? It is through His finished work, His obedient life, His sacrificial death, that life is found. He is indeed the only mediator between God and man. He is the only priest who can lead us to God. Any others who claim to be priests or mediators are liars and should not be trusted. Faith alone in Christ can effectively bring us into a right relationship with God. And if you are in Christ, then I will ask, are you walking as a priest before Him? Do you even view yourself in that light? It's what the New Testament calls you. You you are a, a nation of priests. You are a holy priesthood before God. You are God's temple. Uh, do you view yourself in that way, as a priest before God? And so are you, are you walking as a priest before Him? Are you drawing near to God so as to enjoy His presence? Are you? This is the work that priests are to do. They're to draw near to their God and they're to enjoy His presence. Are you doing this? Are you coming before the Lord, praying to Him? Are you coming before the Lord uh, to commune with Him through His Word? Are you walking as if you were walking in the presence of God? in His holy tabernacle and temple? Are you living holy before Him, or are you content with your sin? One of the primary work of, works of the priest is to be holy before the Lord. Are you living holy before Him, or have you grown content with your sin? Are you faithful in prayer? That is, are you faithful to offer up prayers to God for yourself on, and on behalf of others? This is the work that priests are to do. Are you eager to worship God and to promote the worship of a God amongst others? Or are you complacent in these things? Are you concerned to bring others to God through faith in Christ? Or have you grown complacent even in this? You are a priest if you are in Christ Jesus. And so live holy before Him. Promote His worship. Be faithful in prayer. Bring others to Christ as well. I specifically will ask this question. If you are a husband a father or a head of house, are you functioning as a priest in your home? Are you faithfully leading your wife and kids to God through Christ? Are you promoting the worship of God there in that place? Are you interceding for those whom God has entrusted to your care? Are you preaching the gospel to your family so that the kingdom of God might be expanded in that realm over which God has given you dominion? This is the kind of work that a priest is to do, and you are a kingdom of priests, brothers and sisters. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. He is our faithful high priest, the second Adam. He has succeeded where Adam failed. Let us go now to prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, which is so rich. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have spoken. Lord, truly, may we give heed to your holy word. May we listen to it carefully. May we labor now in the work of application. Lord, help us all in this. May we not be like the fool who looks in the mirror and immediately forgets what he looks like, but may we look into your perfect law, your law of liberty. May we reflect upon it deeply. May we digest it and put it into practice. Lord, in particular, help us to live as priests before you. May we walk holy before you. May we come into your presence to enjoy you, to commune with you. May we promote your worship amongst ourselves and amongst others. Indeed, may we bring you all glory, honor, and praise through Christ Jesus our Lord. It's in his name that we pray and all of God's people say, Amen.